let's go welcome back ladies and gentlemen back to the black and white podcast again you know we're trying new things here uh so we're going to do something a little bit different and i mean a little quite a lot uh in fact we haven't really talked about life since probably one of our first episodes in episode zero we talked about more of our connection uh and how we met luke's laughing a little bit don't know why but that's okay (laughs) um but today we're going to talk a little bit more about life. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about why we got into coaching, uh, how we've developed as people, uh, what sort of avenues and ways in which uh, we've developed as a result of those coaching techniques and those, you know, uh, of our own experience. Uh, and we might even get into, you know, things like the community, uh, what impacts we made, you know, outside of basketball as well. Uh, but as you can tell, uh, we're tr- slowly transitioning into more of a life podcast. Uh, we love our sports and that's our core. Uh, but we'll have one of once in a while, we'll have these sort of conversations so that we can even uh, get in more people to sort of relate, you know, not everybody loves sports, and that's totally fine. Uh, so I think uh, this episode will be definitely a filler, uh, or a feeler, I should say, uh, for other people to, you know, uh, see us as human beings, see us as people, not just sports uh, anchors or whatever, you, whatever you see us as. Uh, so again, thank you again for listening to us. Uh, but let's begin. Let's talk a little bit about coaching. Uh, again, those that's sort of the thing that Luke and I has, have really connected about. In fact, that's our, again, our genesis. That's how we connected. That's how we, we met uh, at first. Um, so I'll throw it to you, Luke, because uh, you're definitely the you know, top level coach, uh, especially between us two. Uh, you have the know-how. Uh, you've done coaching for a while. So uh, why, why coach basketball? Maybe let's start there. Um. You know, I, I think the reason I came to coaching is not necessarily the the best reasoning. Uh, you know, with my grandfather and my father being doctors, the expectation not necessarily put on by them, but the expectation that I felt for myself was I should become a doctor. Uh, it just makes sense to carry on that family legacy. But uh, so that's sort of why my undergrad was very pre-med and I did a master's in science. Um, but I think it was... Uh, there was a point in my life where I was like, I want to be, I want to be known. Uh, and for those of you, of you that really don't know my history, I was born with a disability that was supposed to kill me when I was 12. Like I had a 98% chance of dying at that age. And uh, if I didn't, then they were, they told me I would be in a, a wheelchair for the rest of my life, which I am not thankfully. Uh, but for me, a lot of it was based around, I want to be known. I don't want people to bully me. I don't want people to look past me because I have a, a condition uh and so I, I actually went in my mind i went through a list of things that are easy mm-hmm. and that i can that i can be known for and, and and basketball coaching was one of those things that was near the top of the list i'm like there's not a lot of people that do coaching mm-hmm. i think i have a chance i think i have a chance uh little did i know that that, that was actually a hard path to go down but uh, uh i started volunteering at linden uh you know doing some junior varsity coaching head coach of the grade nine team uh, ended up being that I was really good at it. I was really able to uh, get some grade nines to be a lot of grade tens. Uh, sort of gave me the first taste of what success could look like. And, you know, if that grade 10 team hadn't poached my six best players, we probably would have beat them. And, you know, I say it as a joke, but, you know, really hurt my feelings a little mm-hmm. bit, but, uh, you know, it, it was nice to see that I was actually able to succeed in terms of win losses and, Obviously, as I got better and better, I started to realize that win losses are not necessarily what determines whether or not you're a good coach. But it's it sort of gave me the first 
uh, check mark to sort of show me that maybe this is something I could be really good at because I am seeing uh, success in terms of winning. And now I'm seeing success in terms of uh, making those athletes and people better humans. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's been an interesting experience. And I mean, for you, maybe it's a little bit different in terms of you're doing, you have a career uh, and you're doing coaching because you love it rather than you want to do coaching as a career and you're trying to do something else to make sure that you don't mm-hmm. uh, have no money per se, but right. it'd be, it'd be interesting to hear your experiences and how they sort of parallel, but also differ in, in terms of mine as well. Yeah. I mean, that actually hit me now that I think about it, about like, even though we're, we're like, we're coaches, we have such different mindsets and different sort of paths that we took uh, and that we're currently taking, unfortunately with COVID uh, it's definitely screwed up my path. Um, because again, I'm doing it for the love. So when people see that, it's like, well, you know, your league or your, your coaching is expendable, right? So you don't get to coach much. Whereas again, you, you know, you're coaching the colleges, you're coaching university CIS level basketball, uh, which is coming back, which is sort of nice. I'm still up in the air about whether I get to coach or not. Uh, but I mean, we were, I'd say we're both still doing it for the love. I think you do have a love for it. In fact, you do have, you definitely have a love for it. Uh, because not many people would go down the route that you did and probably ask, <laughs> probably talk a little bit more about that route pretty soon. I'll talk a little bit about myself though. Um, coaching for me was sort of interesting because uh, I, I I was I was actually pretty young when I started coaching at St. Marie's. Uh, I gotta actually uh, uh, give a shout out to Mr. Harder, uh, who coached, uh, who actually asked me. You know, he kind of asked me, did you want to help me out with tryouts um, for um, actually Ernesto's team? Uh, my boy Ronald, his brother, uh, his team uh, at St. Maurice when they were in grade seven and eight. So I said, absolutely, I'd love to coach, you know, I'd love to do it. But I was really nervous about it all. Uh, you know, I was in grade 11 at the time. So I was, you know, a kid going into coaching, you know, usually just supporting someone else that's talking. So I was really nervous about it all. Just like, I'm like, can I do this really? Like, can I be a vocal guy? Like, can I like pick things out? Can I pick things apart? Like, is this something I can really do? Uh, but uh, yeah, I completely fell in love with it. And as the time flew by, like I ended up uh, becoming an assistant all the way, uh, becoming a coach the next year for that grade eight team uh, with uh, our pods team. Uh, I got, that was my first real sort of test, real sort of like, okay, this is what you're doing. You know, we have an adult, you know, helping you out, uh, but you know, it's your team to coach. So I was like, uh, let's do it. Like, let's get it. Grade 12. You don't often hear that. So uh, that was a great experience. And I think that sort of propelled me to teach. I was like, you know what, I could probably, do, I can probably teach for a living. And, you know, it's, I'd love to, you know, get paid, uh, to coach basketball for a living, but that's not really an avenue, uh, uh, in Manitoba per se, uh, or, uh, purely in high school or school. Uh, I mean, you see that in universities being able to sustain that, but not, not in a high schooler. So you're teaching and all that. So I thought, you know what, this is great. So that's when I really knew I wanted to be, uh, become a teacher. Um, and then in terms of just being, you know, being, having an affinity for St. Maurice, I was always in the back of my mind, like, okay, I want to win something. And lo and behold, we, saw, we want something early, uh, but we had a huge gap in which we didn't win anything for such a long time. Um, so I knew to myself, this is sort of another question that I'm going to, I'm going to throw to you, but I'll just answer it myself is, you know, what are things that changed as, you know, as your coach? And I think one of the major things that changed uh, for me as, uh, as a coach uh, was just being able to take sort of a step back and understanding 
you know, there's more to life than just basketball per se. You know, you're teaching life lessons. You're becoming a true teacher of yourself. Um, so I became a lot more focused. I became a lot more wise. Became a lot more mature uh, as I became a coach. Um, so I'm I'm really grateful uh, that I did end up coaching. Uh, uh, that I coached for St. Maurice and I got to coach with you at Linden. I think Linden, I learned so much, uh, took in everything. And hopefully again, we can coach again. Hopefully this year I can coach again. Uh, and I think I'm only, only become, going to become sharper as a coach. Um, I'm only going to be hungrier. Um, so I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw that same question back to you. Um, because I mean, I've got to see our progression. I got to see you in Victor major. I got to see you at Linden. Uh, I think me personally, I think you've changed completely uh, as a coach, as a person. Uh, so talk a little bit about that when you think or when you, you know, look back at your coaching career from start to currently where you are now, you know, what are the things that you think have really changed? Have you like, have you changed? And in what ways? Well, I think it's, uh, I'm two different people would probably be the best way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I often pose the question to my athletes now it's a, uh, um, take a snapshot of who you were as a player last year. Take a snapshot of you as a player in the beginning of this year. You play yourself one-on-one who wins. Uh, and if, if the person in this current season doesn't win, what have you done? Because you obviously haven't gotten better. You haven't changed. Um, and so it's just a simple little story to sort of give people an idea of what progress looks like. Um because you might say, well, I, I, I do, I, I've gotten better, um, but have you, can you, could you have beaten yourself one-on-one if you took the two versions of yourself? And a lot of times uh, players will not be able to because they haven't truly made the effort or it's too close to, to decide. Uh, you know, and I remember, I remember some of my first years, I, I used the same five drills over and over and over again because I didn't really know what to do in terms of making people better. Uh, and I think that was both a blessing and a curse for me is that they, Lyndon sort of threw me to the fire by myself very quickly. Uh, I, I didn't have a mentor or coach beside me when I was coaching that grade nine team. No one was there as an assistant, it was just me. All alone, yeah. Uh, and it was just, uh, you know, using the same five drills or same 10 drills sort of sprinkled across several practices. Uh, and, you know, the, the reality of it, was was I able to beat myself the next year? Probably not. But then after that point, it sort of triggers in your mind, what can I do to make myself even better? If I want to make this a career, what do I need to do? Uh, you know, and things like uh, confidence in yourself was a big thing for me. Uh, I'm now at the point in my life where I'm seeing these coaches and I know I'm better than them. I know I'm, be- I know I'm more knowledgeable and, and more able to make teams better than the majority of coaches I'm around. Um, just in terms of the quality, uh, I, you know, unfortunately in, in BC, I've seen coaches that are very com- comfortable with who they are. They haven't been able to be themselves in decades as an, as a coach They're they're doing the same things over and over again. They're sort of saying, well, I won a national championship once that's good enough. I don't need to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and to me, that's a little bit a little discouraging, but at the same time, it's an indication that this isn't who I want to be. And I want to be someone that will continue, continually beat myself every year uh, as I continue to improve. But I mean, it really comes down to, like you said, with uh, this Mr. Harder, it's uh, 
who do you associate with and who do you use as a mentor? Um, you know, because I mean, I had some good people around me at Linden, uh, yourself, Mr. Glore, Mr. Jansen, but the reality of it is, uh, Kirby Shep was my first and real true mentor. Like, you know, how we connected, I literally sent him a, a cold call email and he's like, what do you want? What do you want out of this? And I was like, I have no idea what I want out of this. He's like, all right, let's find out why you come down and, and watch. And, you know, I spent the first year sitting on the sideline just watching. And then after that, you know, you bring me into the fold. And then every year my role became more and more involved. And, you know, by the end of it all, I was an assistant coach. Uh, like, and I basically made the choice to be a full-time assistant coach, even though I wasn't paid to be so. Right. Um, but just being able to soak in all that information and all that knowledge and realizing that there's different ways to sort of teach things. And, you know, I think a lot of coaches – uh, that I see like things like a three man weave. What does the three man weave do? How does it help you? Uh, it really doesn't, but people do it because that's what my coach did. So I think I should do it too. Right. Uh, you know, why else would they do it if it didn't make them better? Whereas things like, um, you know, having your actions and your offense and turning them into drills probably is a better way of making your players better. Um, but that, that, you know, that's something that I learned from Kirby and that was, a, that's a big thing for me is recognizing ways that I can help teach and help improve specific skills. Um, and, you know, being able to go down to San Diego state and seeing a man who makes, you know, whatever it is, six figures, seven figures coaching the sport, you know, I don't think he was the best coach I ever got to see, but being able to see what a man has to do to, uh, make that his primary career. Uh, was uh, invaluable for me being able to see what he does like Brian Dutcher and even being able to talk to uh, Steve Fisher on the sidelines even though technically he was retired just his willingness to actually listen to my conversations and right. speak to me about things like you know the man coached the Fab Five and he was willing to sit on the sideline and talk to me for a bit even though I was this random Canadian that he probably didn't even know my name mm-hmm. you know it's just that willingness to make people better around you and that's sort of what I try and bring to the table is making everybody around me better, whether it's a coach or a player or a parent. If I've made an impact in your life, then I've done my job, whether or not I've won or lost. Just to make a comment on that uh, before we move on, uh, I I like to quote, I think one of my favorite coaches recently has been uh, Gino Ariema from uh, Connecticut, the women's coach team, uh, and what he's been able to do there. But I just remember a video of him talking about uh, him having an interview with uh, uh, this lady who probably casual, you know, casual about basketball, but she asked the question, you know, her, in her mindset, natural progression was, you know, high school coach, college coach, and then onto a professional level of sports. Uh, so she was just asking like, you know, uh, like, why, why would you be at a high school game? What, what do you find interesting about that? And he looked, you know, he looked her dead in the eye and was just like, you know, there, I don't know if you know this, but I can, there's things I can learn from these high school coaches. Like I pick, I usually, when I go sit down, I watch and I'm like, Oh, I didn't, I've never noticed. I didn't see that before. You know, that's something I can probably use. And she was just shocked. She was just shocked. And then he was just, you know, he's a curious guy. He's like, what, what, what's shocking about that? Well, she just like, she said the same thing, you know, high schools, college, NBA, like what, well, you know, what, what can you take? And he said something so profound. He said, you know, not the, not all the best coaches, you know, are at the highest level. They're not at the highest level. They're everywhere. 
you know, you see them everywhere. Uh, they're not necessarily there. Um, so I found that interesting because I think I, that couldn't be more true, especially for your case uh, and for many different coaches around there where you think this coach can probably make it far. Uh, but maybe for a multitude of reasons, they may not be there, uh, whether that's, for example, politics, their own personal choice. Uh, but we need to remember that, you know, when we assume when we look at the NBA, those aren't the best coaches. There are some great coaches there uh, that are definitely overshadowed. There's many different ones, but there's some that uh, you would think probably should be traded, probably should be moved around. There's probably a few coaches, you know, in national teams or, you know, different profession, you know, different, uh, different uh, countries around the world that definitely should, uh, should get there, but they, they probably never do. Um, so, you know, when you mentioned those, you know, those particular people, I think those, those people are high level coaches, regardless of where they are. I don't know if you want to make a well, comment on that. Well, I mean, to sort of tie it together and sort of recognize that it's like, uh, San Diego state offered me a position. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would have paid me more than I've ever made in my life and that they were willing to cover all expenses so living and food and all that stuff plus pay me my salary that was more than I've ever made in my life wow and the only reason I the only reason I couldn't get it is because I was Canadian because I was on a student visa and then I there was no way to convert into a working visa while going to school at the same time and something as simple as that you know the fact yep. that you're the very fact that you're Canadian or or international, international in some regard you know sometimes for those people that's all it takes you know canadian no sorry can't do that <laughs> you know and i mean when i went down to the states to do all that summer coaching like at duke university and you know i got to meet coach k and all their assistant coaches and like there were a lot of terrible coaches there and there, there were these some decent ones uh, but the, all, the thing they all had in common was that they're american and that's why they were at Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three schools, because they're American. Uh, you know, literally, I was the only one that wasn't at a Division One, two II or three school and Canadian. So it's hard, hard when there's government bodies involved, and you know, you really want to keep your jobs to the people in your country. It's it's not not as easy as people think. Like, obviously, there are Canadians and international people in the NBA, but. You know, those teams have money and they if they want you, they'll pay for you. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. how good you are yeah, or how bad you are, really. Obviously, you're good enough, but, you know, you have to prove that an American couldn't do what you can do. And that's very often uh, a pass if you're uh, not a well-known name, like you haven't played in the NBA yourself. Right. So, you know, it's, it's the reality of the trade. I mean, we think about basketball as like this isolated job fair. But it's the same with teaching. It's the same with uh, any of those jobs. Like, who becomes principals? It's not generally the best teacher or generally the best administrator. It's just the ones that were there at the right time or they know the the person knows the principal and they, they hired them as a vice principal. Like, I know people who have gotten the highest jobs in a company because they knew the CEO. Simple reason. Not because they were actually good and, mm-hmm. and they ended up being fired by the board like three months later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those things you know, definitely happen. We think about sports as an isolated venue, but the reality of it is it happens all around us. We just choose not to recognize it because it, uh, it truly impacts us. Whereas sports is sort of this thing that I enjoy watching and most people don't get affected by, well, this guy didn't deserve it. Why is he hired? You know, mm-hmm. but you know, if we put it in terms of anything, doctors, even like who are the best doctors? Oftentimes it's not, the person that's the health minister of Canada, 
the health minister of the province is someone else. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. something to think about. Yeah, no, we've definitely, we've definitely seen that even in our own province. I mean, Pallister is literally just uh, has left, left power to another guy <laughs> who, who apparently supports uh, ridiculous reform. So uh, it's going to be, yeah, I mean, all these things sort of link towards definitely politics, uh, but we see it in all different walks of life. Speaking of all different walks of life, I think uh, coaching has really, for me personally, has really expanded uh, uh, for me on teaching, for example. Uh, like I said before uh, in my little spiel, um, coaching helped me to become, I think, the teacher who I am today, uh, right? You talked about how, you know, you didn't really have too many people. You really had to pick up you know, in terms of leadership, uh, or you have to, you know, you have to pick up some leadership role right off the bat. And that's how I felt with, with coaching, uh, which had led me to, you know, my teaching degree, uh, in some aspects, uh, that I had those experiences. I actually even remember, uh, just before I believe I was about to graduate, we had mock interviews where we had interviews, uh, where we applied, uh, to particular school divisions. Uh, I was really interested in seven Oaks. So I had a really cool interview, uh, with seven Oaks, uh, and I had talked about my basketball experience and the lady, uh, lady asked me a question and asked me that exact same question. Uh, and I wish I, if I were to answer it now, I think it would be a lot, it'd probably be a lot better. Uh, but at the time I like, it just killed me how, how badly I answered the question, but I realized she set me up for, she's like, she literally set me up for, you know, the perfect response. She basically asked me, she's like, how does coaching or how is your coaching for basketball translated you know, to the teacher you are now or the teacher that you may become. So I was like, oh man, like, you know, I, dang it, I could have answered that better. And I told her to, um, I ended up getting seven Oaks, never ended up working there. <laughs> never ended up working there as a sub or a teacher. Um, but, uh, I don't think anyone but, does. <laughs> fair. Um, but, yeah. So didn't end up working there, but you know, great division, but yeah, great people. And you know, a lot of, a lot of people that work there, but, uh, yeah, I've just preferred Catholic schools personally, but that, I, that question always comes back to remind me like, oh, that was, you know, that was a great question. And I think they really appreciate, you know, those sort of those aspects of volunteer, uh, the, you know, the, the, the level of volunteer that you do there because you're not getting paid for coaching, uh, especially at a lower level. Uh, so you're clearly doing it for the love or unfortunately, you know, people do get forced to do it. And you see those terrible coaches out there quite a lot. Fortunately, we've had to dealt with terrible coaches here in Manitoba uh we'll we'll not we'll keep the names we'll keep the names out of our mouths for now uh but we don't, we we don't want to be canceled yeah we we don't need the we don't need the cancellation but we can probably count just on on our both of our hands there you know how many coaches we've we've come across that you know you you probably should just stick to your day job and leave the coaching to people that actually want to be there um and that's how i feel i feel uh i'm moving towards i like high school but i think i'm moving towards the grassroots of basketball because i think uh, kids deserve, you know, someone there for them. Uh, that's there. That's willing to have fun with them. That's actually going to enjoy the sport rather than, uh, you know, people that care about winning, care about keeping scores. Like I can tell you the numerous stories as a referee uh, in particular leagues that I won't name. Again, I got to be careful what I say. Um, but there are particular <laughs> leagues where I ref where I was just like, why are you counting a score when the score is not even in the policy? You know, why, like, why, why is, you know, why is that child going up to their parent or to the coach and being like, well, how many points did I score? Or, um, you know, uh, what, what are we up by? Or, 
uh, or a kid just pretty much handling the ball and not, there's no team level. There's no team effort. Uh, those things are terrifying to see that, you know, parents and players and coaches and everybody within the community still values this idea of uh, winning over uh, development, especially when we talk about it, you know, at the younger ages. And I'm sure you can uh, add to this as well. So I'll let you, I'll throw it to you. You know, what are your thoughts on just the importance of grassroots basketball, you know, regardless of where you are? Uh, well, I think it's the most important thing. Like, and the reality of it is we should be taking our coaches and flipping them around like our NBA mm-hmm. university level coaches should be coaching grassroots and our grassroots coaches should be coaching NBA because at the NBA level, those players are mastering their skills. They're at the mastery level. And so therefore they're pretty self-sufficient. Whereas the grassroots level, we're still at the level of learning and we're still, you know, trying to understand the skills and eventually we're going to get to consolidation, which is more high school level. But still, you're trying to consolidate the the skill, and it's uh, if you have a coach that is a parent who just wants to be there so their kid can have a team, or you know, a, a person that values winning over getting better, it's quite disastrous for yeah. player development. Um, and unfortunately, you can see it in sports that matter in the country, whatever it is, so like in Canada, hockey, USA basketball. Uh, Spain with soccer and things like that. Like uh, the reason they're successful is not necessarily because they have the best coaches. It's because they have enough players that eventually you're going to find, you know, 10 to 20 talented players that can win without the quality coaching. And that's why mm-hmm. I, that's why us, that's why the USA is so good at basketball. It's, you know, there are obviously good coaches there, but the reality of it is they have, you know, tens of thousands of players that they can pick from and they're all born with talent or, you know, they were trained a little bit when they were younger, like mm-hmm. same with Canada and hockey. We were, we have so many hockey athletes. We don't need to coach. Well, we're going to find 10 to 25 talented athletes that will win regardless of how well they were coached. Right. Uh, and I think that's something that we miss as a society is that we value this, the win more than we value the ability to get better at something. Um, and that's, you know, partly why we see such massive drop-offs in, in talent pools. That's why we see uh, the same players every year playing for their country, uh, playing in the NBA, playing in wherever. Yeah. But the reality of it is, if you're, uh, if you're talented at player development, there should be new players every year showing up on your radar. But if right. it's constantly the same people, then you're just banking on the fact that they're always going to get better. And that's, uh, you know, working with the national, like Canadian national team, uh, you know, you, you get to see that a little bit. You, obviously, there are some people there like uh, Mike McKay who are very focused on player development, and his role is super important. And people right. don't really recognize, recognize it. Like, he has a wealth of knowledge, and he is literally the one that is trying to make the entire country better at basketball. Right. Whereas there are... 10 people that want the w to his one that wants to make the country better uh, and that's it's evident sometimes in in our results unfortunately you know uh usa's result uh, seventh in the world cup like two years ago or whatever mm-hmm. it was right banking on talent you're not trying to make players better at that point uh, and that's why usa wins the u16s the u19s uh, because they have so many players that are really good 
mm-hmm. and they don't have they don't have to worry about the development necessarily. Right. But uh, you know, it's a it's an unfortunate problem, uh, and once people start to recognize it, um, then we can change. But the reality of it is, uh, we're all gu- guilty of desiring that win. Yeah. We want to feel better than the other side, and that's why you know you see you talk about youth programs where parents and kids will actually keep track of their score even though there's no score in the league it's just you play nothing yeah there's nothing right and i mean like uh kirby told me a story about his daughter when she was younger and like um she kept track of how many points she scored and uh you know he he made the comment of like why does it matter there wasn't there's no winner or loser why do why does it matter how many points you score yeah you know did you get better is, is the better question you'd be asking yourself right. is, did, did you improve yeah uh, and if you're improving then that really is the ultimate win at that level right uh, and it's that type of mentality and obviously that's a that's a coach that understands the importance of player development and ultimately what it comes down to is the the family aspect of sport right uh you're all in this fight together and you know if one person falters then the chances of the team faltering increases rapidly for mm-hmm. every person that starts to falter. Uh, I, I often use the comparison of the, the Roman, the ancient Roman army, right? Like yeah. uh, when, when you see the ancient Roman army, they have a spear in one hand and a shield in the other. The, the spear is used to kill their opponent, but what's the shield being used for? Who does, who does the shield protect? Like, who do you think it, it protects? Does it protect them? Well, I, I would assume the person that's carrying the shield itself. It's trying to protect oh. themselves. It's protecting the person to their right. Uh, 300? So, so well, well, maybe, but like literally in, in historical records, it's like the shield was used to protect the person to your right because right. the spear is in your left hand. Right. So you have, you have nothing to protect yourself on your left. So the shield of the person to your left is protecting you. Right. And so that per, if that person screws up, you die. You don't have, you don't have a chance. It's not, it's not on you. It's on the person beside you. Right. And that's the that's the ultimate trust and like the family mentality of like I have to protect the person beside me. I have to make them better. Right. And uh, you know, obviously, we're not going to war and sport, but we want to make everyone better and protect them and help them improve right. and make sure they can get to the end. Right. Uh, and and that's really what people are lacking in at the younger levels, and it, it translates eventually to the higher levels. Yeah. That's why you always see the same twelve to fifteen players every year because no one is is it being able to get better yeah you know and it's it's unfortunate like uh i mean i have all tons of stories but even like players that i was recruiting for university of bc okanagan like the guy said he went to the, the provincial tryouts and the team was already pre-selected before everyone got there right like no one really had a chance like he he made it as a walk-on basically it was a mentality of like he surprised everybody because no one knew who he was. Right. Right. But the majority of the players were selected before they even showed up. Regardless, irregardless, or regardless of what what they did regardless, in the camp. Regardless of what they did in the camp. So they basically took their money, said, thank you. Uh, better luck next time. Yeah. You know? Really, it, they didn't care because it's the same kids over and over again. Same kids over and over from U14, U15 to U18. It's the same players over and over again. And you know we all we all fall guilty to this uh, this predisposition that I know this person, so I want him on my team or my staff or whatever because I know him. 
Right. I know what they can bring to the table. Whereas we're not selecting the the best people available. We're not allowing them to show their potential. Like, and I understand it to a degree. You want to pick people that you trust, but why wouldn't you want to pick the best person for the job? Best person for a team gives you better chance to succeed. I think. Right. <laughs> but what do I know? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we live in a weird world. And again, like we said, this translates not just to basketball, to life as well. I think one of the places that's impacted me the most, uh, as you can presume, is probably my own community. Uh, you know who I am. You know where I'm from. I don't have to mention it. Uh, but I'd say out of all the volunteer experiences I volunteered at, I'd say that place is probably the place where I've, I've dedicated most of my work to or definitely most of my life to. I worked there for about four or five years. Uh, for those that may not know, I worked at a uh, summer camp for kids, uh, especially a lot of these kids were particularly at risk. Uh, a lot of kids were, for example, newcomers, uh, people that came in relatively uh, even new to the country. Uh, and basically my goal uh, and for our staff was to build a program so that uh, one day would you know, settle or adjust. A lot of these kids also came coincidentally in the summer. Um, so their first school experience was us. Uh, multiple years uh, uh, and many years, you know, kids that did come. Um, so it was definitely interesting the first couple of years, a lot of work, uh, but we built it up, got over 120 kids, 130 kids. Uh, a lot of organization had to go, you know, uh, put into it. Uh, but I, I felt a sense of, you know, pride, you know, working for my people, working for my community, uh, helping people out, uh, doing something that was selfless, seeing uh, you know, seeing so many people, so many kids improve and grow. Um, you know, sometimes I don't even see that impact. That's something we'll probably talk about a little bit more after too as well. Uh, and at the same time, when, you know, people ask me, oh, you know, how come we don't do that anymore? I, I feel a level of disgust and regret. Um, but I've known, like, I, I'm not a quitter. I've never been a guy that quits. Uh, even when, you know, things went south, uh, I told myself, I'm going to try to make this the best month. Um, because for me, it's always, okay, well, who am I benefiting? Well, I'm not benefiting the people that are higher up. I'm benefiting the people that are there that are, that actually need me. Um, so, but I also know my worth. Um, so that's why I knew, well, you know, I know when to step away and walk away. Unfortunately, some people don't, uh, but I do. Uh, and happily enough, you know, I had left, luckily enough, got a teaching position and job and I moved on, but that shouldn't be the end. I should, you know, I'd be more than happy to help and work them, but knowing what I had to deal with, especially the last year I was working there, I knew, you know, this is the end, uh, until, you know, change happens. We talk about it in the context of basketball, we talk about it in politics and things until things change. Uh, I told myself I'd never, I'd never stoop that low to go back. Uh, you know, to people that were, you know, uh, willing to, you know, so to speak, uh, not appreciate uh, my worth uh, and certain people's worth as well. Not just me, but many people that worked there that left uh, weren't appreciated. Um, and that's that's how I feel. And that's as genuine as I'll ever be about, you know, those sorts of things without, uh, again, without being canceled as much as possible. Uh, but it always, it, it deeply hurts me every time, you know, I think about uh, those kids because uh, I know, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, I'm sure they have someone to look after too, hopefully. Uh, but I don't think necessarily every single one of them does. And I feel like at sometimes, you know, dang it, you know, I wish I was there for them. But 
uh, again, like I said, I know my self worth. So uh, unfortunately, uh, well, I'll never a, go back there. With those types of things, sometimes it is hard because uh, we often seek gratification for the things we do, and whether it's you know with jobs, our gratification is often money, you know, our salaries, things like that. But if you're volunteering, uh, the gratification is being able to see people or, mm-hmm. or kids or whoever you're in, trying to impact seeing them be impacted uh and when you're working with youth oftentimes you don't get to see that uh and you often need to have this mentality of like of recognizing that you have impacted them uh, you know i don't know how old your kids were but like mm-hmm. you know say they're 12 yeah you may never see their you may, may never see the impact you've made on them because that, that impact won't be known until they're 18, 18, 19, 20, because that really shows that they've made this decision to go to university, get a job, do this, do that. Uh, and I think that sometimes it's hard for people, especially those who, who desire that gratification immediately or you know don't recognize that there's a gratification in knowing that you've impacted their lives. Um you know, and that's unfortunately why so many of those organizations have a hard time finding volunteers. And so to have volunteers that are willing to do that, like you were with this with this group, um, it really um, benefits them because you're in it to help people, whether you see the result or not, knowing that it has impacted them and it will happen just later down the road. Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those immigrant families or marginalized families, you know, if you're not there, you know, maybe they, they never go to school. Maybe they never graduate well, from high school. Well, just like they're, they're vulnerable people. They're a vulnerable group of people. And we've mm-hmm. seen it multiple times throughout the news. Like I just had just found out about a kid who uh, was uh, associated with a murder. You know, a kid who I saw in high school and school doing well for himself. That after school progressively, you know, and after high school progressively just got worse and worse to the point where now he's in jail or he's, you know, he's in custody right now. You know, who knows what happens, but the fact that he went, you know, that far down the rabbit hole, it's like, dang it. It's like, what could I have done better? Like, what could I have done to reach out? And oftentimes, you know, people can't, it can't be helped, but in most times I think it can, like I said, they're vulnerable people. So what do we do with at-risk kids? Well, we want to make sure they're in the right programs, whether that's, you know, a program that I develop or programs that are already set up. Peaceful Village does a great job, Boys and Girls, Salvation Army, uh, need center all these things all these programs do you know fantastic job um and that's that's all you can do is you know try to help those that are willing to help but again you can't can't always help everybody uh and I've, i i unfortunately had to learn that the hard way uh with so many people either you know especially people in my community uh dealing drugs you know uh oftentimes they're going you know uh, uh oftentimes they're in uh it's not even them or it's, you know, they're particularly, they're uh, associated with people that do it and slowly join or, you know, they look towards those particular people as family and do it. Uh, but it, it seems like uh, there are, you know, times where, you know, my, you know, my people uh, are getting a bad reputation for them. So those particular things. So, you know, as a teacher, I'm always thinking, well, you know, what can we do as a community? And then, but again, like I said, you have, you know, particular leaders that would rather, uh, you know, uh, have the glitz and glamour show that we're doing something, but not actually developing. We talked about before with basketball, it's the same thing with life. Uh, and it, mm-hmm. yeah, it hurts, it, it hurts me deeply, but the positive note is, uh, and I know you were going to mention it too. We talked about it sort of off air 
is that impact. And I think we do have positive leaders and role models. You know, uh, my parents came in the 80s. There are people, you know, when people always ask me who my heroes are, I always ask, I always say it's my parents. Like, you know, once in a while you you say your sports star or whatever like that. Uh, But when it, when it comes down to it, it's, you know, if you're lucky enough to have great parents uh, or people that look up to you or, you know, people that take care of you. Uh, I've always said it was my dad and my mom. Uh, And now that, you know, uh, you know, I feel like now it's my turn, you know, me being the first generation Eritrean born here. uh, I feel like I have a responsibility uh, for these, you know, these particular kids to look up to, not just me, many people, my brother, I I can talk about my brother, you know, my sisters and men, a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of these black girls who thought, you know, they probably didn't, you didn't, they probably didn't think nothing of it as they're going to school, but now they're thinking, well, I can be in med because my sister can do it. Because, you know, they see my sister's friends in med as well. They see black people, they see black girls, uh, they see women in STEM. And I think that's, that's, that's such a powerful thing. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, we don't see that particular impact until we start to hear, you know, we start to talk to the kids. We start to see, okay, what are you interested in? Well, I'm interested in med. I'm interested in teaching. I'm interested in these sorts of things. Uh, so, you know, the best thing that people can do, especially people my youth and people younger than me, uh, is, you know, keep grinding, keep working hard. Uh, and, you know, you'll see positive impact in yourself uh, and in future generations. That's, you know, that's, you know, what I'm proud to say, at least uh, uh, going on in my life, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, you sort of touch on it, but I, I wouldn't mind hearing uh, an answer. It's uh, how important is it for someone to see uh, someone to succeed that looks like them? You know, you sort of touched on it with your, you know, your sister and woman and being in medicine, but it's almost like how much more impactful is it for you to be a teacher and work with marginalized people who look like you versus mm-hmm. me working with the exact same people, but being night and day, you know, um, I'm sure that your, your involvement has more of an impact on them because even if, even if it is as simple as, well, he looks like me right. and he can do it that sort of means that I have a chance that I can do it, right. you know? I mean, especially in today's society of, uh, of all these, uh, you know, stories of racism, you know, mm-hmm. genderism, sexism, ableism, uh, all that stuff. It's how impactful can it be that you literally see someone doing something that you thought wasn't possible because right. of how you looked or how you behaved or right. your orientation or right. whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I would imagine that your sister being a doctor or becoming a doctor will impact many, many marginalized women of color. And it's not necessarily because she literally touched their lives, but they mm-hmm. see someone that looks like them doing right. something they thought they couldn't do, you know, or, yeah. you know, other people that we know doing sure. sort of the same thing, starting organizations for people of color, or right. starting organizations for, um, you know, um, trans people or something like that absolutely yeah for sure i yeah like like i said before uh and i'll preface it again basically um i for me personally i'd never know my true impact until someone maybe brings it up uh even as a teacher like i'll get you know i'll be very lucky enough to get awesome emails from from parents from kids you know just saying just saying thank you you know for being who you are i've just i was literally at my uh uh, we a little bit, you know, a little bit different, but we had our grad dinner, St. Mary's grad dinner, uh, two months later, 
but you can tell, you know, those particular kids, they wanted it. So we had it. And I got a chance to talk to a few of this, you know, my students, even in psych, and they're like, yo, you know, Mr. A, I'm, I'm going to be taking psych in university, you know, because of you, you know, because of the way you taught, because of the way you were really interested and passionate about it. You know what? I want to be, I want to be in psychology. One, one girl came up to me just before I was about to leave. And she said, well, I'm, I'm really interested in minor, minoring in my own minor, which is child development, child psych. I'm like, wow. Like, and I always tell them like, whenever you need anything, come to me. So sometimes impact is important. Uh, when I talk about people of my own race and my own color, I think it's so important that we have that. Um, even if it means you having to break the mold and, you know, I didn't particularly like when I think about it and you can probably answer this as well. Like I personally never had a black teacher in my whole schooling. I don't know. I, I'd, I'd throw that to you. Have you ever had a black teacher before <laughs> either gender? How many minority uh, teachers cool. have you had? In high school, I had... Including subs. No. Let's say including subs, too. Uh, you know, I've had a few few women teachers, but the majority okay. of them were white white males. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, I mean, in university, I had... That's where one... the diversity probably started to open up even a little bit. But, not, but not even, so much. Even, eh? even that. Means... No, really? Wow. Yeah. I had... I, had, I want to say I had... A, Two black teachers. Yeah. Shout out to Musius Tesfogorgas history. That's, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> UW, baby. <laughs> Musi Tesfogorgas or whatever. Lo- loved his own papers. You know, <laughs> most most important research in the history of mankind. But... <laughs> all right. All right. Um, but yeah, so that's my, my point proven. It's the same with me as well. I mean, I did go to predominantly all white school for my like first half of my year, you know, first half, but even St. Maurice, maybe had a few subs, but I didn't really have. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think people have preferential as well, but I think it's an also important, like I said, to break that mold. And if it means, for example, me in the teaching field to have to break it, especially in Catholic schools, uh, then by all means, I'm more than proud to do that. Um, but I don't, I don't think anybody, I don't think any less of anybody, uh, uh, if they're teaching, I think they're trying their best, but as we said before, I think that impact, uh, is crucial when we do see, you know, a level of diversity, but I think, and we'll talk about it probably in a different episode, uh, but we'll talk about sort of like, you know, uh, opportunity, quality of opportunity and outcome and all those sorts of things. Uh, because yeah. I also think merit is important as well. Like we don't want to just hire for the sake of hiring. Let's not get into this because it's going to get into too much. Uh, but I think yeah, yeah. The, I think diversity is um, of crucial importance just so, you know, people can, like you said, can see that level of success uh, and work ethic. But again, like I said, I, I'm glad to break that mold. I, I've not, I could care less. Like it doesn't matter to me um, because I'll make friends, you know, I'll make friends. I'll make, uh, I'll make, uh, make friends with people wherever I go. So for me, I'm not, I'm, I'm happy to be that first person for people. If that, if that's what it means. Yeah. Well, I think there's two things that, uh, that uh, sort of um, mm-hmm. spark, spark my, my thoughts or interests, uh, you know, um, I'm Métis, but I don't look like I'm Métis or what, what you think a Métis person would look like or an Indigenous person would look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I had a professor that was Métis that looked exactly like me, like very, very white, essentially. But he was a Métis and, and you know, a part of the Red River Métis mm-hmm. group. You have to be very, very Indigenous, very Native in order to be a part of the group. So you know that you're really, truly Métis and not some sort of fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being able to see someone like that allowed me to have the confidence to sort of pursue that history and understand it. And that's, that's the kind mm-hmm. of guy that made me get my Métis status guard and, you know, sort of trying to understand my history moving forward. But, 
you know, just a quick thing, not to go on the rabbit hole or anything with the merits. Uh, you know, there's a difference between I need seven black people and I think we need more diversity in the workplace, right? right? One is very creepy and one is like collecting Pokemon cards. (laughs) I need seven black people in this job versus we're looking at merits, but we would love to have diversity. If someone is close, we're going to pick someone that will add to the diversity because we need more stories because everyone's story brings value to the company definitely if you start saying we need seven we need six women we need eight asians we need four indigenous people then then it's becoming like you're collecting cards you're collecting and that's not not valuable for a workplace yeah Uh, and you know there's a if you want to look it up hassan minash does a does a like a 30 minute episode of a, mm-hmm. of a show on it, of this, of this very premise of merit versus uh, collection. I, I forget what he calls it, but there's right. a term that they use. Uh, it's this uh, idea of what kind of diversity we're looking for. Right. Uh, is it, is it just diversity of, of people or is it specific diversity of like seven of this, eight of that, right. nine of this, you know? Yeah. Cause well, one, one is, Quotas, yes. Yeah. One is very valuable and one is not. Yeah. And, that, and uh, one of them creates a lot of division and one of them does not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Def- definitely, definitely. I think that's a very important distinction to make and a very possible topic that we talk a little bit more about in the Black and White podcast in the future. I think what we're going to do is sort of uh, close it there. But before we do, I think I want to give you some final thoughts. Anything uh, we touched upon today or something you wanted to talk about for our viewers, uh, I'll give you the floor. I think uh, the one thing that we sort of think about in all this is we isolate jobs, we isolate people's experiences as their own, but every person's experience brings value to your own journey. Um, And too often we isolate them as separate and not a part of our own. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know when you tell me stories about your, your experiences, your histories, uh, your your heritage, your uh, teaching experiences, coaching, this and that. I always bring, you know, I, I gain information and knowledge from those stories, from those experiences that help improve my own. And too often I think that people choose not to use it as a way to grow. And regardless of whether it's a profession, professional growth, personal growth, uh, spiritual, emotional whatever it is um always listen to people and use it as a way to make yourself better yeah no i i have to completely agree with everything you just said there um i got not much to say i think i've said everything i need to say (laughs) and again we'll talk more on this podcast about these sorts of things as well i think it's fun as well and we'd love to invite as many people as possible get your say as well or how you feel as well so a little bit different so hopefully we'll get some more views on this one too as well uh, and we see you. We know we know the Rushmores are getting quite a bit uh, popular here. We're getting more views, but please listen to our other stuff as well on the Black and White Podcast on Spotify. You can hear us there. Uh, but for now, we will take care. We will uh, take care. Have a good night, and we will see you on another episode next week. Peace. Goodbye. Have a good one.